Hello and welcome to the Folklore Podcast. I'm Mark Norman, folklore researcher and author. Earlier this month, I brought together 11 other of the best folklore-based podcasts from around the world, America, Australia and the UK, for a two-hour recording marathon together. The premise was this. Each of us would have just a few minutes to present a piece of folklore that we thought would be worthy of the crown for best folklore story of the night. When we had heard all the choices, everyone would have a chance to discuss them, defend their choice, and then vote on a winner. One rule. Nobody could vote for themselves. The results were, as you would expect, chaotic and a lot of fun. But we heard some fantastic tales, some well-known and some far more obscure. Over the next two weeks, you will get the chance to listen to the whole event. In the next episode, the debate and voting. But this week, we enjoy 12 great folklore stories from myself and 11 more wonderful folklore-based podcasts. This is Folkapalooza. Hello everybody and welcome to whichever podcast you are listening to because in the room with me at the moment, not literally, but on my screen, for those of you of a certain age, it's like the most folkloric episode of Celebrity Squares I think I've ever watched. Uh, In the room with me are people from various other folklore-based podcasts that you might have enjoyed. Uh, And today we are going to have a big debate You'll notice I used the word big and not any other word to describe the size of this debate. We're going to have a large debate about who has the best piece of folklore to sell to the rest of us as a story. At the end, we will all vote on who has the best folkloric tale. But first, let's meet who is in this mass recording of folklore podcasts. Starting top left on my screen with... Paul from Tales of Whitlaw. Paul, tell us a little bit about your podcast. Well, probably, I would say, unlike most people, I take it very, very seriously. I work very hard on my podcast. I, I make sure I edit it down. Now, I, I wing everything. Mine's absolute ter- absolutely terrible. Don't bother listening to me. I make everything up as well. The end. <laughs> Perfect. Okay, I think that's a good recommendation that you've given yourself there. I don't think anybody's going to better that one. Uh, Next up, Rick from Law and Legend. Tell us about you. Hi there, Uh, I'm Rick. Um, Together with my co-host and fellow storyteller, Sebastian O'Dell, we uh, do Law and Legend, tales from our epic past. And uh, that is a mix of uh, sort of traditional style storytelling, uh, but also with um, a bit of audio illustration uh, and soundscapes and that kind of thing. Uh, So yeah, we've done uh, two series so far. Uh, We've got a series on uh, British folklore um, and our second series, which is about the Greek mythology of dreams, is uh, just starting at the moment. So uh, the, the first full episode is out on the 26th of this month. 
synopsis. <laughs> awesome. Thank you, Rick. Next is Holly from History and Folklore <coughs> Podcast. Hi, Holly. Tell us a little bit about your work. Hi, um, I'm quite a new podcast um, and I basically look at medieval history um, and sometimes early modern history, but mostly medieval through Europe and folklore, traditional tales and try and see what that tells us about how people looked at nature in the past, um, which sounds actually quite boring when I put it like that. So it's just me basically rambling on for 15 minutes about history and folklore and nature tales, really. Thank you very much. Graham from Tales of the British Isles. What do you cover? Okay, so I'm Graham, and it's fairly self-explanatory in the name there, but I make uh, the Tales of the British Isles podcast, which is basically old folk tales and legends from Britain and Ireland told in a sort of modern way, I suppose. Um, and after each episode, I'll give a brief and decidedly non-expert rundown of some of the history of the story, which I like to go into a bit. We've done quite 26 episodes now, um, covering things from Irish mythology, the Mabinogion from Welsh mythology, and also some odd little tales, um, like the tale of Albina, a murderous princess who founded Britain. So that's pretty much it. And I always rely on a script, so this is pretty difficult for me to be doing, so I'm looking forward to that. Thanks, Graham. Uh, moving across to the other side of the world, next up is Mr. David Waldron from Tales from Rat City. Uh, hi all, um, my podcast is on dark stories from the goldfields of Victoria. Perhaps a little bit ironic, we have this sort of Victorian-Victorian theme. <laughs> um, and I particularly love uh, looking at these stories using original dialogue and having voice actors to uh, read the letters, diary entries, and newspaper articles from the period as we look at these stories developing out of... Uh, um, the darker and more traumatic sides of uh, the goldfields of uh, Australia in the 1850s, 60s and 70s. Lovely. Thank you very much, Dave. Fabulous folklore. Miss Icy Sedgwick, tell us about you. Well, hello there. Um, I do fabulous folklore and it is essentially get your fix of fabulous folklore in. It should be 15 minutes or less, but I do like to go on a bit. So now it's sort of pushing 20 minutes. So I hope people will forgive me the extra five. I generally look at... Um, well a bit of everything um, plant folklore ideally um, bit of mythology generally northern European as that's clearly where I'm from if the accent didn't give it away and yeah if I can get a bit of urban legends on there then I will and that's my sneaky little hint for what's coming up in this uh, this big debate that we're going to be having 20 minutes is absolutely good some of us have podcasts that go on for hours and hours James, one half of Lawmen, tell us about your podcast. Well, um, so me and Alistair do it together. Uh, yeah, you need me to back you up, James. You're feeling a bit intimidated. I'll, I'll jump Massively. in. Massively. Yeah. Yes, please do. I'm here. Relax. It's as normal. Just pretend everybody else isn't there. Okay. Whoa. I met a whole bunch of weird bunch of people today. Huh? No. <laughs> tell me about um, it. Hello, everyone. Uh, I'm James uh, from the Lawman podcast. Uh, I co-host that along with Alistair. Who's Hello. also here. And our podcast is we look at the more obscure legends and eccentric bits of folklore that you know because it happened in the village that you grew up in, kind of thing, and probably no one else knows about it. That's what we want to hear about. 
Yeah, like the local legends that haven't had the Hollywood treatment. So I always say, like, it's like Loch Ness and Robin Hood. It's not that. It's like, well, Icy will know the Lampton Worm, but it's it's stories that are really, really famous in one area, but don't really travel. Like the ghost duck. <laughs> Although like the, the ghost, ghost duck, duck did... The ghost duck did travel, even though it had no head. But That's what made it so dangerous, that. its ability yes. to travel, yes. Yeah. So that's Superb. Us. Thank you both very much. Uh, next up, let's have um, House of Legends. Tell us about you, Daniel. Hello. Uh, so I run House of Legends podcast. It's been going for just over a year now. Uh, it was weekly, but I got too much. Now it's fortnightly. And I come from a background of oral storytelling. I've been an oral storyteller for about 10 years, and I'm really passionate about that. Uh, so that's the focus of the podcast. It's either myself or a guest oral storyteller uh, telling a story as we would to an audience. So without a script, just uh, improvising on, on the story we know and love. And uh, more recently, I've been doing more longer interviews with other storytellers and talk, getting into why they love stories, how they became a storyteller, so on. And I also sometimes do cheeky readings from my books because I'm not averse to a bit of self-promo. Brilliant. Thank you very much. Uh, over the Pond to the States, Bone and Sickle and Mr. Al Ridenauer. Good evening to you. Uh, Bone and Sickle is uh, partly folklore, but we also try to drag in uh, pop culture stuff and usually uh, horror movies. Uh, I always describe my show as the intersection of uh, the horror genre and folklore. And that horror can include uh, literature going back to the Gothic and romanticism and um, can go up all the way up to uh, camping movies from the seventies and beyond. Um, So uh, we look at, folklore from all over the world. I, it's all presented from uh, sort of uh, another world I live in where um, it's uh, sort of in the neighborhood between Charles Adams and uh, uh, Edward Gorey. Uh, so we have a, I have a library there and I have an assistant there who helps me and is very preoccupied with bees. So we've been doing a bit of storytelling. She presents all the um, direct quotes from uh, our historical sources, uh, primary sources and I provide everything that connects those. I always like to go have the primary sources. They're more dramatic than we know how to be now, I think. So uh, we put a lot of emphasis on that. Lots of uh, production on it too, uh, store, uh, music and sound effects to kind of uh, get, so get in that region between a lecture and a radio play. Indeed, lovely, thank you very much, Al. Uh, two to go, Celtic Myths and Legends, Sean. Completely forgot to mute myself. Hello. Um, I probably can one-up, Paul, because um, I wing everything. Um, I'm wildly inconsistent and I'm incredibly uh, unproductive. So um, that's uh, sort of my show in a nutshell. (laughs) I cover um, all six Celtic nations, um, but it kind of veers between folklore and, you know, mythology and things like that. Um, But yeah, I'm up to 19 episodes in almost three years. So thank you. Thank you very much, Sean. And finally, last up is the mysterious anonymous lady who does not announce her name from the Fairy Folk podcast. Good evening to you. Hello. <laughs> um, so the Fairy Folk um, 
retells local myths and legends from around the UK, um, as well as retelling the legends themselves. Uh, I also like to talk a little bit about the places that they're set and how you can visit them too. So it's sort of an audio tour, if you like. Um, the podcast doesn't just cover fairies, as the name might suggest. Um, we've looked at dragons, mermaids, and many other folk tales as well. Um, and I also usually like to try and mix one more well-known story with something a little bit more obscure as well. <laughs> Thank you very much. Uh, and finally, I am Mark Norman, and I am the creator and host of the Folklore Podcast. I suppose I should say what I cover as well. Just about everything that is anything to do with folklore, uh, either through my own writing or through the interview of many, many expert guests from various fields of folklore from around the world. Uh, five seasons and 79 episodes in for this one. So what are we going to do this evening? Well, as I said earlier, everybody has come prepared, armed, if you like, with what they believe to be a winning folklore story. Um, we will set one ground rule uh, for the voting for this, which is you may not vote for your own story. Uh, other than that, it's an open field. So I'm going to ask each of you in turn, and we'll go round in the order that we just introduced ourselves, uh, to tell us why you believe you have a particularly fantastic piece of folklore and what it is. And then at the end, we will all unmute ourselves and some kind of chaotic discussion will ensue, by the end of which hopefully we will find a winner. So, Paul from Tales of Whitlaw, what are you bringing to the table this evening? <clears throat> I'm bringing the tale of uh, Many Coloured Sam. So a very strange tale. This is probably the weirdest tale I've read or, or heard about in years it's from the 1970s and uh two children uh were uh, walking past the the golf course near here in, in sandown and they heard a wailing sound so they 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 followed a path and came down to near where the uh the airport is and a chap walked out uh and said uh, and uh, sort of had a microphone in one hand and a box in the other and um, started speaking to these children. And, you know, he said, hello, I'm all colours, Sam. And he took them into a little shed. And when they got inside the shed, it was bigger on the inside, a bit like a TARDIS, actually, bit bigger on the inside than the outside. And um, he, he, he didn't have a neck and... Uh, he was about seven foot tall and he had big spikes out of his head and his, his clothes were all multicolored. The whole thing is truly bizarre. And, um, and, and the dialogue between, uh, all colors, Sam and these children is something completely out of this world. Um, uh, where the reports of the dialogue is somewhat almost broken English Things are a bit turned around a little bit. Um, and uh, so when I found out about this, and I only found out about this about two or three weeks ago, I actually went down and traced the steps. And sure enough, everything that's described in the story, actually, you can actually trace it down. Um, and the whole thing has just completely fascinated me. I've even reached out and I've actually been able to find the young girl 
who were in, in 1972, uh, reported it, who is now uh, in her um, uh, 60s. I've actually tracked her down and I'm meeting up with her in two weeks to go and talk about this story. And she still maintains that it's true to this day. Intriguing. And that, that is, uh, I am all colours, Sam. Fantastic. Thank you very much, Paul. That's a good opening contender in my book. Rick from Law and Legend, what would you like to put up against the tale of All Colours Sam? Um, well, I'm going to talk about um, parrots uh, and a particular story is uh, called the, the Night of the Parrot. Um, so a little bit of backstory to this. Um, in one of uh, the episodes in the first series, there's uh, called uh, Lady Isabel. There's a, a, a slightly odd scene at the end where she sneaks back into her father's house. And to do this, she has to um, sneak by her talking parrot and convince him not to wake up her father and, and give the game away. Um, and anyway, uh, this kind of set off a little research into, um, you know, it's 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 quite a sort of um old timey kind of story so like a parrot in england um you know how how common were parrots what what's their place in folklore and that kind of thing so anyway um in one of our episodes we uh, we talk about uh this uh fascinating history that we discovered uh about the folklore of parrots and the fact that they were believed to be uh, spiritual and mystical creatures because a lot of ancient sources uh, sort of from the classical world talked about parrots that were sort of found in India um, and the fact that they were reported as being able to speak with human voice this kind of got uh, exaggerated over time and people thought that they could like hold like uh, that they were fully intelligent and they could hold a, a conversation and all of these kind of things um, and they were thought to have lived in the Garden of Eden and to have been cast out. Um, and that's for that reason, they were called uh, the bird of parad, uh, the bird of paradise. Um, and if you if you ever hear about a, a popping jay in sort of uh, medieval sources as well, that's another another word for parrot. Um, but one thing that we didn't discuss in the episode or didn't go very much into it is the fact that um, they were because of this spiritual association. They were sort of um, seen as a royal creature. Uh, they were often associated with like elites uh, and kings. Um, and there is actually a, uh, I don't think a particularly well-known uh, Arthurian um, source uh, legend called the Knight of the Parrot. Um, and basically, um, this is a um, an early, it's an adventure of King Arthur. Um, and, you know, you have all of these adventures of Lancelot and all the different knights who go off to sort of like earn their kind of chivalrous uh, deeds and dues all in the service of King Arthur. The whole premise of this adventure seems to be um, it takes place in the space between uh, when he becomes king and, and you know, he, before he sort of steps back and becomes the king, you know, around the table. So he goes off and he has the he sort of like earns that... Um, kind of uh, he, he does all of his own sort of heroic deeds and that kind of thing um but anyway uh, very early on in this adventure um he's uh, he's presented with a, a quest so um one of these uh, sort of traveling 
mysterious otherworldly fae lady says to him um, that uh, she will take him to uh, one of the most beautiful courts you could ever hope to see anywhere, which is quite close by here. Some 500 knights may be found there, the best in all the land, who have already gathered to attend court, ordered in such a way that he who claims to have the most beautiful damsel and can prove this by exercise of arms, shall thereby gain a parrot, which a dwarf brings there every year, it being the best bird in the world, who sings the sweet, pleasant song of love, and converses cleverly about matters which warm the hearts of men and women. Um, So, King Arthur goes there, Uh, he wins the fight uh, against the, the... uh, baddest and meanest knight in this court as you would expect him to um, and when this happens he wins the parrot um, and he uh, uh, the, the the parrot's quite a, a comic character he's sort of like think of uh, I don't know uh, Iago in Aladdin um, he's um, uh, so very loquacious and he spends all of his time talking about how how uh, brave and excited he is to uh, to be um, to be um, the the parrot of the best knight of the world, uh, and obviously this this tale is it's uh, like a lot of Arthurian legends. You know, it's as long as the quest tree for like an, a modern online multiplayer role playing game. So, needless to say. Uh, a lot goes on, but there's quite a few good comic moments. Um, the 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 one that stands out to me is when uh, King Arthur is having a fight with uh, this kind of monstrous knight, uh, and the dwarf gets so scared that he drops the parrot in the middle of the battlefield and flies away. Um, and the parrot becomes very flustered and starts uh, and starts crying out for his life. And King Arthur's all like, "Oh, I thought you said that I was the best knight in the world, and, that, and all these kind of things. So why are you so afraid now?" Um, and uh, the other thing that the parrot does quite a lot, uh, it seems, is act as a um, kind of as a King Arthur's wingman. He spends a lot of time convincing all of the uh, beautiful and noble ladies that uh, he meets on the quest that they should really get together. Um, so. um, but anyway, sorry, to bring it to a close, um, after he has won... The parrot, uh, King Arthur, declares himself um, when all of the people ask that, you know, uh, they ask by what name he who had delivered them from their from their bondage should be spoken of. And the king answers by the knight of the parrot. So, um, you know, all of the different Arthurian knights have, you know, the the, the maiden's knight, the knight of the cart. Um, but I hadn't known before, but. Uh, King Arthur himself, before he was just King Arthur, was the Knight of the Parrot. So that's my contribution. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you very much, Rick. So there we go. The tale of All Coloured Sam, the Knight of the Parrot. Not Hammer Horror's best film from their stable, in my opinion. Uh, Holly, please bring some sense to this meeting that is quickly going downhill already. Okay, so I don't really have a story as such, but I have a theme that I wanted to bring. Um, So the first is there's a household spirit in Spain called a trasgu, and it's really destructive, will create loads of havoc, loads of noise, destroy your home. But if you want to distract it from doing that, you just make a mess with small seeds and it will want to pick it up. 
But this is impossible for it because it has a hole in its hand. So it just spends the entire night picking it up until it gets bored and leaves you alone and goes away. Um, And this is linked, well, it's not really linked, but I think most people have heard of Will of the Wisps, which are sort of like little spirit lights that guide you out into the distance and you get lost as a traveller. And if you want to distract that, you get a needle, place it in the ground, and what the Will of the Wisp will want to do is then try and fit through the head of the needle. And while it's doing that, you can just wander slowly away. And the final one, which I think is my favourite, is vampires. Because if you want to distract a vampire, you get a load of rice or poppy seeds. You put them by the grave of the person who you think is going to turn into a vampire or outside your house or just carry them in your pockets and scatter them. And they will stop and want to count them. And it gives you time to get away until they've counted all of them and they've got the right number. So my submission is basically how easily, how easy it is to distract these really fearsome creatures that want to kill you. So I just like the idea of a traveller, say, 400 years ago, coming across a Transylvanian village, say, and then go, well, that big castle up there, like there is a vampire, so do watch out for him. But here's your free rice. We put some out by the castle. I wouldn't worry about it too much. It's fine. So, yeah, that's my submission. Perfect. Thank you so much. Distraction in folklore. Okay, over to Graham, Tales of the British Isles. What would you like to submit, Graham? Okay, so I've got not one story, but a kind of collection of stories, but I'm not going to try and tell them all, so (laughs) that's one good thing for you all. Um, And these are MC Balfour's 10 Legends of the Cars series. They're from the 1880s, and Balfour was a folklorist. Uh, Most She mostly did these stories with what she's famous for. And they're really quite unique as folk tales go. I should probably say as a way of introduction what the cars are. This isn't cars, obviously. The cars are an area of fenland in Lincolnshire. They're all very flat and marshy, cut through with drainage ditches to try and reclaim some of the land. Now, by the time that Balfour was collecting these stories, that had happened. But she's harking back to this time before that. And she presents this place as the strangest, remotest area of the country before the drainage. And I'm just going to quote here. The cars as they once were, a wild, desolate, dreary marsh full of strange sights and sounds. Here in this bleak and lonely tract, scarcely yet won over to civilization, has dwelt for ages a people, ignorant, poverty-stricken, and strongly affected by their wild home and still here amongst a few elders who remember the traditions of their youth linger tales that tell of the old pagan customs that have perhaps existed in these parts since the very dawn of history. Now, that's just her introduction to the place. That's not a story. That's what she thinks of this place, apparently. And I know that's probably just how a lot of southerners see the north, but it's not typical in people collecting folk tales and how they represent them. This is about... 50 miles away from a decent-sized modern city. But no, this isn't a quaint rural place with some charming traditions. It's a Lovecraftian hellhole. And then when we go into the stories, which are written in this really difficult-to-pass transcription of the local dialect, which she basically invents this, and it's all full of apostrophes and commas and incredibly difficult to understand, they don't follow any standard narrative form at all and there's no guarantee of a happy ending. Taken together, they paint this 
picture of how horrific it is to live out in this area where there are just monumental numbers of supernatural terrors roaming the place like something from Buffy or The Witcher. There's boggarts and witches and giant cats and bogles and will-o'-the-wisps and skeletons and jack-o'-lanterns and crawling horrors and the ever-present animated corpses of the dead and that's just from one line in one story. And the people who live in these areas are basically relying on these magical powers to keep them safe. They have wise women and magic charms and they smear blood on entranceways and they make offerings to the strangers at harvest time. And it's all just really folk horror and that is not something you get very often in folk tales. And they're just a kind of joy to read these unexpected stories. So I've told one on the podcast already, which is The Dead Moon, and that has a kind of happy ending, but that is not common. Most of them are this unremittingly bleakness, and some of them are told by children. She collected them from children, and I think that might be one reason why. There's one about a man who goes into the swamp, who thinks he's better than all the marsh creatures, and you just know he's going to get it. And in this really intense scene, he gets dragged into the swamp by a disembodied hand. Okay, fine. But they find him later. And then the rest of the tale is, they find him. His own hand has been ripped off by the stump and he's unable to speak and then he just hangs around for a year, dies. His mum, she dies too out of heartbreak because, yeah, why not? That's it, really. That's the kind of thing that happens in the swamp. Best not live here. There's a similar tale with another Tom who does a a good turn for a creature called Yallery Brown and he ends up cursed with ill luck for life. That's the story. It's not a good place to live. Now, there's a bit of a difference in quality in some of these, so while some of them hold together, there's others that are this really just like a monologue or like a monologue macabre stream of consciousness. And my favourite for that is one called Flying Childer. And that's the last one I'll try to kind of summarise here, though I really would encourage you to go and read these, but probably not in the original. And in Flying Childer, there's... Some of the elements kind of featured in this include a murder. Well, the first murder. That murder victim having their hands and feet hacked off and thrown into a pig pen, where they then call out to be properly buried. I'm not sure what they're calling out with, but call out they do. There's a wise woman, because there's always a wise woman. Then there's another murder of a mother by another kidnapper, but he then gets killed by his flying children. They're flying, because why not? But it doesn't end there. Oh, no. No, then he wakes up in some kind of strange limbo afterlife that's never really explained, where a giant worm with the head of the murdered woman eats him up all slowly. And it's just like being in a bad trip. And you kind of you kind of read these stories and just think, wow, folklore's really weird, isn't it? And I, I tell these particularly because it was when I, I think I knew one of these as a child and, uh, a year or so, a couple of years ago, I picked up a book of these and started to read them. And then I thought, wow, this is interesting. And that's what really got me back into folk stories and um, telling them on the podcast. And that's my kind of my submission. Lovely. Thank you very much, Graham. So in an effort to win Graham Cram's every sort of folkloric creature and tale that you can imagine there into one submission. Good work. That was cheating, wasn't it? <laughs> we'll let you off. David. Tales from Rat City. Are you going to hit us with some Australian folklore? 
I was thinking I should just get a bit of diversity in there. And I'm going to tell the story of the Harton Hills ghost. And this is something I want to write a paper on or something about one day because I think it's a fascinating story with a lot of layers to it. So in Australia, like in the UK, you had this phenomena in the uh, mid to late 19th century of people playing the ghost, going out in ghost costumes and scaring people, you know, tied into Spring Hill Jack. In fact, we had our own Spring Hill Jack panics. Now, this is a particularly odd one. Harton Hills is a small town uh, based around a cattle station, former squatter settlement between Portland and Hamilton in Western Victoria, a fairly remote place. In 1877, people became absolutely stricken with terror at the Harton Hills ghost. And this was the ghost that took the form of a dead Gunji Mara man, that is the indigenous population of uh, Western Victoria in, around that Portland region, on sites with there being conflict between the settlers and the indigenous people. Indeed, at one particular place at Blackfellas Creek, they described it as where the whitefellas and blackfellas had an altercation and the blackfellas ended up worse off. And this was tied to a pattern of quite deliberate and systemic uh, genocide by the early squatters when they came to Western Victoria trying to remove the Gunjimara people from the land to appropriate it for sheep and cattle farming. And it turned quite bloody. It's referred to in Australian history as the Umarella Wars, uh, though, of course, there's political uh, debates where they go, was it really a war or not because of numbers of people and a sort of a general pattern of demeaning Indigenous resistance. So this particular story is these people became struck with terror. They were seeing this figure on these sites um, covered in phosphorescent paint in the matter of the war paint of the Gunjimara people appearing at these different sites. And people became absolutely terrified. And the papers started to refer to it as, is this an example of Namadage? And Namadage was the term the Indigenous people used in Victoria to describe a mythology that when Indigenous people died, they were reborn as white people and vice versa. And part of this was in settlement in Victoria, the ships came from the south, which is where the souls were meant to go when they passed on. They were white and the burial rituals of the Indigenous people uh, involved uh, smoking the uh, bodies and preparing them with clay so they would turn white and white is the colour of the paints they would use when they're in funeral rituals. This goes back a, a long, long time to try to run a full time to talk about it. But you get interesting stories like, um, you know, when Blackfella Kalpami jump up Whitefella. You get interesting uh, stories from this where, you know, one of the first people executed in Victoria was an Indigenous man and he said, you know, no matter, no matter, me jump up Whitefella with plenty of sixpence. You'll see. But they also had this belief then that the reason white people acted so horridly was the trauma of dying erased their memory, that they blotted it out because of that experience of going to the netherworld. So that's why they didn't know how to behave, they didn't know kinship, they didn't know how to relate to the land. So we have this ghost popping up and it terrified people. They sent out huge posses of dozens and dozens of boundary riders um, with local townsfolk out heavily armed across the countryside. And eventually they capture this man, uh, a woodcutter by the name of Robert Downey, and they beat the tar out of him. And he says, no, no, I was just doing it for a lark. It, never mind. You know, it was just a silly joke. What the hell? Yet the odd thing is he knew the sites. He knew the locations. He took the time to dress as a Gunjimara man. And we know nothing about him. Just there's this woodcutter who was reenacting being a ghost on sites of horrific trauma that people pretended that no one had knew about, that no one knew about the um, massacres of Indigenous people at these places. Yet here he was reenacting it as a ghost. And that 
being on those sites was such that it terrified people to the point where they dropped everything and went out in huge darn posses to capture the Harton Hills ghost. And I think there's a lot of very interesting layers there. There's a lot of very interesting local politics. There's a lot of interesting discussion of, you know, who these people were, what was their relationship to those uh, conflicts of the Umarella Wars in the 1840s and early 1850s. And that's my contribution. Thank you very much, David. Icy, I know, is going to come straight back at you with uh, something that you've already mentioned in your contribution. Icy, tell us why you think you have the most fabulous folklore. Well, because I've got Spring Heel Jack. Um, I'm not going to drop my mic, although pretty much I could at this point. Um, I think Spring Heel Jack is, well, he's a funny one because he's actually a bit of a bit of a wrong'un, but he's he's developed in a, um, a reputation as being a bit of an anti-hero and he's made a leap, pardon the pun, uh, totally unintentional, into popular culture in a way that I think... Um, has sort of aligned him with sort of superheroes and so on. And basically who he is, is back in 1838, there was a report in the Times of a an attack in Peckham. And it was uh, swiftly followed a couple of days later by attacks in Hammersmith. And bearing in mind, these are obviously villages on the edge of London at the time, not what they are now. And it was essentially this figure... Uh, the reports do vary what it looked like and it was sort of, you know, attacking women in particular. And it all sort of took the papers by storm um, for the first couple of months of 1838 and then it all kind of came to a head in February of that of that year because there'd been so many attacks on people and it was, I think it was because the guy had these big claws um, and he was obviously ripping at people's clothes and things and there was a reward put out for his capture because obviously he's he's upsetting the the populace. And a woman called Jane Allsop opened the door because someone was knocking. So, you know, that's what you do. And this guy came to the door pretending that he'd caught spring Jack, but he needed a candle so he could, like, check. So Jane turns away and then he basically jumps on her. And, uh, and according to her statement, it, she, he actually vomited blue flames on her. And that's the kind of thing that would stick in your mind. And he started obviously clawing at her and, and tearing her clothes and everything. And it was actually her father and sister that came to her rescue. And because of the testimony of them and her injuries, it corroborated her story. And the funny thing is, you can actually obviously read these uh, these stories in the paper. And it's weird thinking how they went from these stories of just somebody being attacked at the door to what he became later. And he, uh, the last sort of true report of him, uh, and by by some people's reckoning, is actually uh, eight days later by a girl called Lucy Scales. And then after that, it just takes off and you get stories about him from the 1840s, from the southern counties of England and also the eastern counties of England. And Aldershot in 1877, a sentry claimed to have shot him, but it had no effect. And there's a story from 1904 from Liverpool, and obviously you don't have to be a maths genius to think 1838 to 1904. That's a fair uh, fair stretch of time. But where he's quite interesting for me is the way that in the 1863 he appears in Penny Dreadfuls. So he kind of goes from... I, I called him a demented gummy bear in, in my podcast, and that's honestly been the most tweeted thing I think I've ever said. 
and he he appears in these stories where he's then going round and he's like he's acting like an anti-hero running rings around the the police and he's uh, his alter ego is called the Marquis because he was believed to be uh, the Marquis of Waterford and he allegedly wears a skin tight costume he's got a cloak in some of the stories he's got these big claws he's got a helmet and he apparently the thing that really makes him stand out is the fact he can like leap like 10 to 15 feet at a time and where he's interesting for me, and this is why I think he's cool, is because all of the stuff that people repeat as fact is actually probably nonsense because it all comes from the Penny Dreadfuls. So he's an example of a figure where something genuinely weird happened and some guy was genuinely running around and just randomly attacking people for whatever reason we'll never know. And then all of a sudden he then becomes an anti-hero and, he, I mean, he was the... He was getting set up to be the villain in the the second series of Houdini and Doyle that never got made, and he somebody wrote a letter to the police claiming he was Jack the Ripper, uh, which again the maths doesn't work, and I just love the way that he then also pops up in other countries as well, and it's and I think part of it is because of the fact the authorities couldn't catch him. There's like that little part of all of us who's kind of like, yeah, you go, you're a rotten person, but you 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 kind of get one over on them. And he, uh, yeah, I don't, I, I don't think there's been any stories of him for a while, but it is twenty twenty, so who knows? This could be the year that he makes his comeback. <laughs> That's my submission. Uh, thank you very much. I see the family fun of folklore that is slashing innocent Victorian ladies in the street. Perfect. Uh, okay, so in an effort to beat all of you and take this crown. Lawmen obviously are going to gang up and have two separate submissions rather than one between them to give them a 50% extra chance of winning. So, James, you're first up. You can't have the ghost duck, unfortunately. That's already been mentioned. What are you going to bring to the table? What? Oh. Uh, well, what I've got, I've got a ghost story for you. Um, this one is from one of my favourite books, The Folklore of the Cotswolds by Catherine M. Briggs. It is... Ah, such a good book. Um, I had first heard of this story when I first moved to the Cotswolds when I was about eight or nine, and something about it really stuck with me. It So I lived in Chipping Norton, which is uh, a little town, little market town in the Cotswolds, and this happened... This story happened at the turn of the century, the turn of the, what, the 19th to the 20th century... A man, a brewer called Mr. Bayliss, who I'm going to refer to as Papa Bayliss because he's the father of the person who he told it to. Uh, Papa Bayliss, he was dating a girl in Milton under Witchwood, which is a little town not too far away. And he would go to visit her on Wednesdays and Saturdays. And he would, he would walk back at night. And Wednesdays he'd get home in good time. But on Saturdays he'd stay a little bit later and he a couple of times on his walk he'd notice a weird sound of like some sort of ghostly um like a a ghostly horse and cart sh- shooting by a coach shooting by and that kind of freaked him out a little bit and then but one saturday a very dark saturday he he was comforted by the sound of someone walking behind him and he struck up a conversation with them and didn't didn't seem to notice that week that the person didn't say anything and just turned off and carried on to Churchill. 
And then the next week, he was walking again, and around the same point, he heard the footsteps behind him, and again, didn't seem to realise that he was just chatting away to the guy, and the guy wasn't chatting back to him. And then the third week, it was a full moon, and he thought, I'm going to have a look at this guy. So he turned around and looked, and the guy behind him was your textbook ghost. He was an Elizabethan-dressed man with absolutely no head at all on his head. It was underneath his arm, and Papa Bayliss uh, ran and hid and and always made sure that he was home before midnight. And that's the tale of Papa Bayliss. Fantastic. Thank you very much, James. We'll, uh, we'll split the lawman up, I think. Let's have let's have um, Daniel from House of Legends in between. Uh, bring bring your story to the table, Daniel. Okay. Well, I've had like a hundred different stories go through my head by now because everyone's talked about such interesting things, and it's made me go like, "Oh, I want to talk about this now. Oh, I want to talk about this now." Uh, but now I've gone all ghosty, so I'm going to talk about Bloody Mackenzie. So Bloody Mackenzie is Edinburgh's poltergeist. And to take you back when, to when he was alive, he oversaw the Covenanters' prison. He was Sir George Mackenzie, and it was his job to deal with the people, the, the prisoners and the last survivors of the Covenanter Rebellion in the 17th century. So he oversaw the Covenanters' prison, which was at the end of Greyfriars Kirkyard, home to Greyfriars Bobby, which some of you might know, slightly nicer story. And... Um, so he oversaw these people and he was dealing with uh, their food and their, um, their provisions. He was dealing with uh, their trials and their executions. And when this was all over, the, when, when he died, they gave the city council soffit to give him a crypt, the nicest one in the whole of Edinburgh, possibly the nicest one in the whole of Scotland. And they put it right next uh, to, his, uh, to the Covenanters' prison. And the story goes quiet for a couple of hundred years until 1999, when uh, during a winter storm, a homeless man came into Greyfriars Kirkyard looking for a place to take shelter. And uh, this, is, this is supposedly to a fact. He went into George Mackenzie's crypt. He saw stairs leading down. He went down there and he saw four coffins on stone plinths. And he did what any of us would surely do in that situation. He started cracking open the coffins and looting uh, the bodies. So he's taking, yeah, I can see everyone's nodding. Uh, so he was uh, taking rings and necklaces, what have you. And he did the first coffin, and he did the second coffin, he did the third coffin. And he was just coming to Mackenzie's coffin when the ground gave way beneath him. And he fell down, down into a lower, lower chamber he fell into a plague pit, a pit that had been sealed for hundreds of years full of plague corpses. And apparently it had been so well sealed that they still had a bit of flesh on them, green slime on them, all this stuff. He fell into all this. And, well, he wasn't having a very good time by this stage. So he's, ah, he was screaming and screaming and he climbs out of there, runs out of the crypt and gets away from there. And it's decided after that, uh, he gets seen and people are a bit freaked out by this. It's decided after that, they should put a padlock on uh, George McKenzie's uh, crypt door. So they did that. But the very next day after they did that, a woman is supposedly walking through the graveyard on her lunch break, just uh, 
you know, an ordinary lady having an ordinary day when boom, she was hit by, she called it an invisible force that knocked her off her feet, slammed her down on the ground. And they say this, this meant the bloody Mackenzie was out. And since then, there have been hundreds and hundreds of documented attacks on people in this graveyard to be the work, believed to be the work of Mackenzie. Over 140 people have been knocked unconscious. And you go online, you can see lots of pictures of cuts and scrapes and bruises and so on. And well, I could go on and on. There's so many stories about Mackenzie. And just to give a couple, um, one was that a couple of teenage boys uh, broke into his crypt one night. And they went down into uh, the chamber where the coffins are and opened up the coffin and used a pen knife to, to hack off his skull. Uh, this, is, this was in the paper. These kids, these kids, they got caught and they brought it out and they took it out. And this was late at night. You know, they've been drinking a bit, as you do in the graveyard. And they started tossing it back and forth. They started playing football with it, kicking it between the gravestones. I'm told that they turned it upside down, filled it with beer, maybe buckfast and drank from it which is just pretty disgusting. <laughs> they were seen there, caught up with, because uh, they're under 18, their names aren't known. But another story is that uh, a year after this all started, a guy called Colin Grant, a spiritualist minister, called up the people around the graveyard and said, oh, I'd like to help out. I'm hearing about this body, Mackenzie, and I'm, I'm a bit of an exorcist. I'd like to try and help this guy move on to the next world. Can I come and do that? And they said, yeah, if you want, you're a free country. So he came along. And he went and stood before Mackenzie's tomb and he went into his trance and then he went very white and he began to shake, came out of it and sort of ran to the other side of the graveyard. And when he could talk, the guys were saying, well, what happened? What happened? And he, he said he'd be, he went into his trance and found himself surrounded by this great throng of spirits. And this was a guy, he, this, this was his bread and butter. This was just a Tuesday for him. But there were so many of them and they were in such a terrible state and they're all screaming and screaming. And he said, I can't come back here. I can't come back here. And he left. And this was in 2000, two weeks, two weeks after that day, Colin Grant, this minister, he dropped dead of a heart attack, believed to be the work of Bloody Mackenzie. And just to finish off, uh, there is a story. I don't know if this one's true. Um, but apparently a couple of stonemasons were working down in the tomb and they heard moaning. And these guys were freaked out. You know, they were big, tough guys, but they heard this moaning. So they were freaked out and they came out and said to the gaffer, no, no, not going back down there. I'm not going back down there. And he's like, oh, I'll come down. So he went down into the, into the crypt with them. And what did he hear? But, mm. hmm. And he got to this, he was coming through this little wall there and he started chip, chip, chipping away, chip, chip, chipping away. I made a little hole in the wall and they found the source of the moaning. Apparently they'd chipped through to the basement flats and they other side the wall to a bedroom where a man and lady were having a special cuddle and that was the source of the moaning. <laughs> Don't know if that last one's true, I just heard it but I like it. So uh, that's a bit of folklore about Edinburgh's poltergeist, uh, Bloody Mackenzie. If you ever come by to Edinburgh, you can go and knock on his door and see if he comes out. But you probably shouldn't because he probably will. Fantastic. Thank you very much, Daniel. And a good shout out there for Buckfast Tonic Wine. Uh, I live not too far from Buckfast. I live not too far from Buckfast Abbey. So uh, it's, it's good to hear that one come up again. Alistair. Back to the lawmen. What would you like to offer for the other half of your podcast submission? Uh, well, f first of all, 
I, I really appreciated the story there, Daniel, where you, you said uh, they were drinking beer or Bookfest out of a man's skull, but uh, but they were 16, which is not appropriate. You shouldn't be drinking alcohol out of a skull at that age. That is that is that is illegal, actually. So thank you for pointing that out. I, I really enjoyed that. Um, it is unfair. We're cheating because there's two of us. So um, so I I thought I wouldn't give you a story per se. I would give you a legend that definitely won't win, but I think represents the spirit of everything that is important in capturing folklore. My legend is a woman called Patricia Well. Nope, I'm going to say her name correctly to show the appropriate respect. Patricia Wilnecker. And uh, we've probably done about 60 stories, and she stayed with me longer than anyone else because she's a collector of ghost stories, mostly. And uh, she's published a few, I won't call them books, I think they are, I think pamphlets is the technical word, uh, based around uh, Poole in Dorset. In Dorset? Of course I would. I bloody love the place. That call and response usually works better when James's mic isn't muted, but it's very, very funny, and we do it every time. So I hope you enjoyed it. Um, and she is an enthusiast. I wouldn't say she is the greatest writer, uh, nor is she, nor has she got the best nose for a tale because her stories, I think they're all true, but it's all things like, uh, I woke up in the night and when I went into the hall, the chair was wet. And that's the whole story. And, and then that's just the next one. It's like, I thought I saw someone, but when I checked, there was no one there. And every one of them is like that. But they're, they're, they're written 50% in all caps in order to add drama. Uh, half of it is about her dog bounty, which I find adorable. And in, in reporting on her stories, uh, because she sounds like from the way she writes, she, she, uh, uh, uh somewhat, uh, aged. No, that was a terrible word. I was trying to find a nice word. She sounds like an old woman. I, I wanted to know whether she was still with us. And so I, I Googled her, it, thinking I might find an obituary, which uh, ho- hopefully uh, I won't. Uh, and and I, I haven't. Uh, but there is a Daily Mail article about her, which has brought me more delight than anything it printed in the Daily Mail has any right to. Uh, the headline is... Pensioner, 81, who visited the same beauty spot for 70 years, is banned from ever returning after the landowner accused her of mowing down his son with her car. Yes, this is the work of Patricia Wilnecker. She's visited Lamorna Cove every year since 1948 until she, and I'm going to make this very clear, allegedly knocked down the owner's son, who is 36 years old, so let's not feel too sorry for him. May not even have happened. Um, my favourite thing about this story is, she, so she has, she absolutely loves this place. She's been banned from ever returning unless she apologises for knocking down the guy's son with a car, and that is not happening. Uh, I think Patricia Wilnecker is a genuine legend. Fantastic. I would be inclined to agree with you. Thank you very much, Alistair. Al from Bone and Sickle, which one of your distinctly unpleasant tales are you going to pull out of the bag? for this meeting as an american i i don't feel obliged to uh, adhere to any of the rules we're all using um i have a sort of a category and not a not a one tale but a a category when um i did a recent episode on superstitions associated with toads i was surprised there was so much material there and so much material i had never never encountered before somebody's sort of obsessed with this sort of thing um 
I'm go- so I'm going to uh, Rick did it a bit with his parrots. I think uh, we we had the Lady Isabel in a show too, and I wanted to go f- down other paths with the parrots, but uh, the Toad episode gave me an, an uh, excuse to do to do this. Um, so the I had already I already knew about the you know the Toads in Macbeth. Uh, Agnes Sampson had a uh, Toad as a familiar, so I knew about witches' familiars as Toads, but I hadn't realized what an important thing uh, it was for the uh, witches in Spain, uh, in the Basque regions and the Pyrenees. Um, there's a, uh, <clears throat> by the way, since I do, uh, I'm not telling a tale, Mark. I'm just going to use this time. You gave it to me. So I'm going to throw out a movie some people might enjoy. It's called, uh, it's called uh, Zuguramudi in Spanish, but the English title is, Witchin and Bitchin, that's the American title at least. And it's about the witches. There was a, in this, ba- in the Basque um, regions uh, that was uh, actually more than any other region in Spain. So apparently toes were extremely important uh, in this area. Um, and what particularly figured into all of the uh, Sabbaths and uh, other rituals was toad water. Uh, toad water was uh, something that dried, toes would be dried and then they would be, uh, uh, ground up and then they'd be boiled in water and this would be used for baptism um but also th- that was just like the beginning of how toads were used um they were also used uh, as uh, sort of music musical uh music makers um to- some to- uh, there's one account that has toads dressed in little velvet suits and uh shaken as a sort of percussion instrument by during the sabbath um there's also accounts of toads being fed by uh, the uh, witches that were kind of the, uh, they, they hadn't yet graduated to taking part in the Sabbath. So they would just, they were toad babysitters during the Sabbath. So that was, uh, that was an, another aspect of their, their toad fixation. Uh, and uh, apparently they also played uh, bagpipes at the Sabbath, which is Sabbaths. Um, there's a, you know, the, some of you guys will know the, uh, Charles, uh, what's his, Charles McKay, I think, uh, Charles McKay's, uh, 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 extraordinary popular delusions and the madness of crowds. He has a chapter in there about, uh, 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 the witch mania. And I don't know where his, what his source is, but he does mention, uh, let's see, standing on their hind, the frogs, toads standing on their hind legs while the devil played the bagpipes or the trumpet. Toads were all endowed with the faculty of speech uh, entreated the witches to reward them with the flesh of unbaptized babes for the um, exertions that had given them pleasure. And the witches promised compliance. The devil then bade them uh, keep their word and then stomped his, stamped his foot and the toads sink into the earth. So that's the end of the witches, the toads in Spain. I, um, I have also, uh, I, I was surprised that they were, um, a big part of, uh, in, in Finland, I ran into them again in uh, the phenomena of uh, toad, uh, toad coffins. Uh, apparently, uh, this, these are kind of like witch bottles uh, that would be stashed a lo- usually in ch- old churches and a uh, bunch of 19th century uh, renovations uh, found these little coffins. Uh, the toad has to be a red toad, according to the instructions. The coffin has to be made out of wood from, uh, the, all the pieces have to be from one tree eight nails, ninth through the heart, and uh, that has to be tied with red thread. And so they would function. People would plant them in there for, uh, to, uh, basically it was counter magic to attack people they thought had attacked them uh, via witchcraft. 
I had not known about uh, toad fairies, which I guess, Mark, might have been in your region. I'm not sure. Uh, big thing in the 1800s. So I'm finding all these things out uh, when I'm researching toads. And also um, the uh, uh, the toad men, another thing I hadn't known uh, about uh, it's a, a horseman's cult. It was uh, like the horseman's word, uh, 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 horse whisper phenomena. But this would involve uh, people who wanted to train horses would, uh, would um, have to find a toad, kill it, hang it in a bramble bush. And then once it had decayed, they could take the bones, throw them in a stream, and the bones would be found, and that would, if they carried the bone that surfaced, that would give them control over horses. So uh, another thing I had not known, toadstones. I had not known about toadstones. I'm just making all of these discoveries along the way. The toadstone is a, a stone that's a get good against uh, poisons in the Middle Ages. Uh, it was... Um, Removed, it was in the center of the toad's head and was removed by placing the toad on a red cloth. And you'd have to, uh, according to one uh, book from the uh, 1600s I saw, you have to uh, place the toad on the red cloth, cut a hole in the cloth, put a box underneath, and then we can obtain the, uh, the stone. But uh, some, uh, one of the, uh, the, it's a Flemish, uh, Flemish scientist who was a father of mineralogy or uh, tried that experiment as, as a young man and he spent all night and was uh, grievously disappointed in that. Uh, the best story, I will end with an actual, like, a uh, little bit of a story, uh, involves uh, the St. William of Norwich, or Norwich, as I as an American would say, but I've been <laughs> roundly scolded, and uh, I'm learning a lot. Um, so uh, so uh, he it involves, not even him, but it involves uh, a, de a devotee of his, uh, a woman named Wimmerk. I don't think there's any other stories about her, um, but uh, it involves her being in prison for being a Christian, and um, uh, the toads were considered very poisonous in the Middle Ages. So there were lots of toads populating the dungeon she was thrown into. And she and the other inmates of the dungeon decided that might be good to poison, escape by poisoning the guard. So they grabbed the toads and extracted the venom and offered the guard the venom to drink, which for some reason he refused. I don't know. And he had a better idea. He said, why don't you drink the, this uh, concoction? And apparently, so they were all forced to drink the concoction. Um, and um, they all uh, swelled up according to the stories till the, I think the quote is till no one believed they could swell anymore. And um, they, um, so they, we only follow one of the people in the story, which is the woman, Vimark, the, we don't know anything about her except she was a Christian woman. And um, it's uh, according to, let's see, according to, uh, uh, let's see, according to uh, the account I have, she uh, went to a saint, uh, the shrine of St. Norwich, uh, uh, William of Norwich. And um, she found there that uh, she uh, found a shrine and uh, bowed before him and then, the moment she bowed before him, she uh, she was greatly swollen, but the swelling was released, and uh, she vomited so that, as it says in the text that I have, is she uh, large the largest vessels possible had to be obtained to fill. So this this happened, and then uh, she was told, and then everyone was evacuated according to this, to this account, and uh, it was an ugly scene. But apparently, after that, she was she was she was. She was uh, healed of her swelling, her great swelling. 
So I, I, I just found all of this very inspiring. I had not known a lot of this about toads. And so to find it all in one tiny creature was, uh, was really uh, a special moment for me. Uh, thank you very much, Al. can always rely on you for something more savory. I know. I can't, can't imagine who, uh, who messaged you on Twitter to correct your pronunciation of Norwich. It's disgraceful behaviour. <clears throat> uh, Sean, over to you for your description of the thing that you would like to present with absolutely no tangents at all. That's going to be difficult. That's going to be difficult, but I'm going to try it. Okay, so I'm going to put forth the Mabinogion. So it might not count as a bit of folklore as it's, you know, a piece of medieval literature, but as it's based on myths and legends, we're going to go for it, but only the fourth branch. So basically it starts off with Math Mafonwi, who's a wizard. And the only way he can stay alive is that he needs to put his feet on a virgin's lap. I mean, fair enough. I, I feel like most people have to do that, to be honest. Um, except in times of war. So his two um, nephews, Gilvethui and Gwydion, are both really into going. The virgin, who's, you know, got feet in her lap all the time. Um, they actually force themselves on her. Not very nice. So when Math finds out, he turns them into loads of different beasts and, you know, animals. And they mate with each other and produce children. And he does this three times, which is... Um, you know, a little bit disgusting, but also kind of absolutely brilliant, which is another thing why I love the Mabinogion so much, is that it's purely magical realism. So some of it is played as so straight and completely normal, but all this wild stuff is happening. Um, absolutely love it. Anyway, so finally he forgives uh, Gwydion, and he basically asks him, well, you need to find me a new virgin now, because, you know, I've married mine, I've had to make her my queen. Um, so they approach uh, Math's daughter or niece um, and they basically say, oh, you can be the new virgin. Um, and actually it turns out she's had two magical children, so she can't do that. Gwydion finds one of her magical children and then tries to trick Aran Harod to like, you know, claim him. Um, and she says, well, no, I won't claim him and I won't name him. I won't arm him and he'll never have a wife. So they do all these different strange tricks and everything to trick uh, her into actually um, making sure that he has a wife. And in the end, Gwydion actually, who's also a wizard, by the way, um, magics up a lovely flower maiden for um, a, a magical son who is called Clue Claw Githes, so he does get a name in the end. But my absolute favourite part of this is that the poor flower maiden, who has no choice in her husband, by the way, she's just sort of forced to marry whoever, um, she falls in love with this like other knight called um, Ronu, who just sort of, I don't know what he's doing really, just riding around the lands. Um, and the only way that you can kill Clue Claw Githes is that he is, has to be on a riverbank in a bathtub with a goat next to the bathtub and his leg on the goat and then only by a spear, only in a very specific part of his body. Um, but she doesn't know that yet. So I love the way she basically approaches her husband and she's like, I'm really worried that you're going to die one day. So, you know, just put my worries at ease and tell me exactly how you can be killed. And he's like, oh, you know, sure, I'll tell you exactly in minute detail how you can kill me, a magical being, in only one way. So, of course, he tells her she gets her boyfriend to kill him. He turns into a mangy, disgusting eagle because he doesn't die. Gwydion runs around the lands of Wales trying to find him, finds this disgusting eagle in a tree, sings at him, 
and then he turns into a nice hero again. They find Blode with the flower maiden, turn her into an owl, and then um, Shlutlaw Gifes lives happily ever after. So just your nice, normal little story, really. There you go. <laughs> Perfect. Thank you very much, Sean. Fairy Folk Podcast. We, we've had a lot of unsavoury stories tonight. Your podcast is always so happy and jolly and smiley sounding. You're going to give us something nicer, surely, aren't you? I'll try my best. <laughs> um, so I'm sure the majority of you will have heard of the creature that I've decided to talk about today, and that's the Loch Ness Monster. <laughs> so the Loch Ness Monster is part cryptid, part folkloric creature, um, and often known as Nessie, which is super cute. <laughs> um, so Nessie, I suppose, is commonly thought of as being a plesiosaur, which is a type of underwater dinosaur. Um, and there's been many sightings of Nessie over the years. And the earliest is supposed to date back to 565 AD, when St. Columba came face to face with what I think was he referred to as a water beast. Um, but then he managed to quite dramatically convinced this creature to stay away and she did uh, for a a long while until uh, around the 1930s and this became a sort of a the heyday of uh, monster hunting um, when sightings of Nessie became more frequent and were reported on by the press Um, and this is when a lot of the kind of classic photos of the monster appeared with each photographer claiming to have finally captured the creature Um, though a lot of these photographs I suppose have now are still a few images that are a little bit more difficult to explain away. Um, And I suppose that's what I find really interesting about the Loch Ness Monster, is not just the creature itself, um, but also the people that have dedicated their lives to searching for it, utterly convinced that, you know, there's something in this loch, that it it exists. Like, uh, bless him, Steve Feltham, who uh, still lives beside the loch looking for the creature to this day. He moved there in the 90s, and yeah, you can still find him there now, which is brilliant. but I have to say the story that stands out to me most, which some of you might have heard before, is that of uh, the infamous Marmaduke Wetherill, uh, who was a big game hunter turned movie star, who the Daily Mail sent to the locker in 1933 to try and track down the creature. Um, and after just three days of uh, monster hunting, he claimed to have found an amazing series of footprints um, beside the loch that uh, supposedly uh, belonged to a giant creature and so the Daily Mail was so convinced that you know this is it he's he's found some tangible evidence that the creature exists that they actually published the headline monster of Loch Ness is not a legend but a fact which I think is brilliantly dramatic um, and so yes uh, unfortunately the uh, the National History Museum soon swooped in to reveal the truth Uh, that these footprints were not only fake, but they were probably made by a taxidermy hippo foot attached to like an umbrella stand or an ashtray, um, which is a little bit embarrassing and a little bit funny, (laughs) Um, but wasn't so great for uh, Marmaduke Weatherall's reputation. But he managed to get his revenge as uh, Weatherall and his stepson were actually behind the infamous surgeon's photo, which went on to dupe the press and the public for decades afterwards and I think to this day is probably the most well-known photo linked to the legend of the Loch Ness Monster so yes that's my tale I hope you enjoyed it (laughs) thank you very much it's uh, a classic tale and certainly uh, one that deserves a place at the table okay uh, for me I am gonna have to bring um, Jeff the talking mongoose as my favorite story Uh, for many many reasons partly because it is 
the story that sticks with me most from my reading of the Usborne Book of Ghosts when I was in school. It's one of the stories that got me interested in this whole business of folklore and the paranormal. And also because it's just a damn fine, strange story. So Jeff the Talking Mongoose, uh, it's a poltergeist case, allegedly, that uh, comes out of the Isle of Man in the 1930s. Uh, A Liverpudlian family, the Irvings, decided to move away uh, to the Isle of Man to take up farming. The father, James Irving, was a piano seller uh, and decided that he was going to move his family, uh, his wife and his daughter, Voiry, to the Isle of Man. And they bought a farmhouse at Cashin's Gap, which is in the middle of nowhere in the Isle of Man. Very, very remote, very, very difficult land to farm. And um, they did struggle when they were there. But um, after a while, they started to report that they were hearing these strange sounds and knockings and rappings and scratching behind the wood panelling of their old farmhouse. The entire farmhouse, which was very, very dark, um, no electricity, obviously, in that area at the time, uh, was was clad in kind of oak panelling, which, which made the whole thing even darker. And there was a gap between the wooden panelling and the actual stone walls. Uh, and this is where, apparently, Jeff the mongoose lived. Jeff said that he was an earthbound spirit, the ghost of a mongoose who was born in 1852 in New Delhi in India. Uh, And he went on to uh, spend quite a lot of time with the Irving family, Um, not in a malicious way. He would help them out. He would he would turn off the stove if the Irvings had gone to bed and left the stove burning overnight. He would go down into the town and come back with juicy pieces of gossip uh, as to what people were doing. Um, He would often accompany the Irvings onto their shopping trips into town, uh, never visible, of course, but bounding along behind the hedges uh, to their side, chattering away constantly. Um, He described himself as being a very, very strange creature with hands and feet, and uh, that if you saw him, you would surely faint from shock. Um, He allowed himself at one point to be photographed, and there are photographs of Jeff in existence, Jeff in large inverted commas. Um, But this case became very, very widely known. It it, um, came to the attention of the famous ghost hunter Harry Price, who travelled to the Isle of Man and stayed for a few days at Cashin's Gap with the Irvings. Um, He took with him a very, very famous paranormal investigator of the 1930s, Nandor Fodor. Uh, And together they, and uh, with the contributions of others, wrote a book, in 1937 called The Haunting of Cashin's Gap, which is a very, very uh, rare book these days. I have read it. It's a wonderful book. Um, And they investigated the whole case and they drew no conclusions. They would not say that they thought it was a fraud. They would not say that they thought it was genuine. They just presented the case. Um, The centre of this case was the daughter, Voiry, who was aged 13 uh, and was a very, very... Uh, bored and isolated girl in this farmhouse in the middle of nowhere in the Isle of Man. Uh, She hit the newspapers a few times, mostly because she was the centre of the activities. Um, The family would feed Jeff by means of leaving chocolate biscuits and other treats on a saucer that was suspended 
above the uh, stairs from a, a string to the ceiling. Jeff lived predominantly in uh, Voiry's room, uh, which became known as Jeff's Sanctum. And um, Voiry hit the papers once or twice, uh, once particularly because some of her school friends uh, told the papers that she was a very, very accomplished ventriloquist. Uh, there is still to this day a lot of mystery surrounding the case. I don't think very many people uh, would would cite it as being a genuine haunting. I think most people would agree that uh, Voiry was the centre of the case for other reasons. But interestingly, nobody has ever completely debunked the case. Voiry herself died in 2005. Uh, she never admitted to having anything to do with it. Um, she did say in later interviews when she did speak to people, which was a very, very rare thing, uh, that she was completely fed up by the whole thing and, and wished that it had never happened. But she never admitted to being the centre of it in, a, in a, a way of fakery or maliciousness. Uh, there is a lot of um, recorded evidence from the case still. The University of Senate Library in London has uh, James Irving's diaries and Harry Price's writings on the subject. Uh, there is a wonderful book by Chris Joseph uh, called Jeff, the Extra Special Talking Mongoose, which is the definitive study of the case and will tell you everything that you need to know about it. Uh, but for me, Jeff, the Talking Mongoose, is probably my favourite folklore story. So I bring Jeff to the table. Uh, and with that, that rounds off everybody's submissions. I will just quickly fly through what we have heard, and then I will invite everybody to unmute themselves and discuss what they have heard. So we had, from the top, uh, Paul from Tales of Whitlaw with the tale of Many Coloured Sam or All Coloured Sam. Rick from Lore and Legend gave us The Knight of the Parrot. Uh, Holly from History and Folklore uh, offered up the various distraction techniques we find in folklore. Graham from Tales of the British Isles uh, gave us Balfour's Legends of the Cars. David, Tales from Rat City, offered up the Harden Hills Ghost, followed hot on the heels by Icy with uh, a similar tale with Springheeled Jack, very well known. Uh, James from Lawmen gave us Papa Bayliss's Ghost. Uh, Sham from Celtic Myths and Legends, gave us the Magnogian. Alistair, also from Lawmen, uh, the wonderful folklore collector uh, and possible uh, slaughterer of 30-year-old boys in her motor vehicle, Patricia Wilnecker. Uh, Al from Bone and Sickle with just about every piece of toad lore imaginable. Daniel from House of Legends gave us the Edinburgh Poltergeist Bloody Mackenzie. The Fairy Folk podcast offered up the subject of their last episode, the Loch Ness Monster. And I give you, Jeff, the extra, extra special talking mongoose. So, you've heard all of the evidence. Which is your favourite story? Who would you have voted for? You have a week to make up your mind. Next week, you can listen to our debate and vote. In the meantime, why not tweet us at FolklorePod? or post in our Facebook group and let us know who you would have chosen. I'll be sure to share your thoughts with the others. September is gearing up to be a very busy month for the podcast. 
We have so many wonderful interviews lined up and recorded, and we really want you to hear them all soon. So, we're going to be looking to put out one episode a week during the month. We'll be looking at Appalachian folklore with author Asher Elbine and illustrator Tiffany Terrell, celebrating the relaunch of the Usborne book All About UFOs, with the spokesman for the declassification of recent MOD UFO documents, Dr David Clark, and impressionist, actor and space enthusiast John Culshaw, who's written the new foreword for the title. And you'll be able to hear an interview with Carnegie Award shortlisted author Zana Freilon about Australian folklore and her latest book, The Lost Soul Atlas. And there's even more to come soon, including high-profile interviews with Natasha Pulley and the author of Chocolat and so many other great titles, Joanne Harris. I hope you're looking forward to listening as much as we're looking forward to putting these out. If you enjoy the temporary increase in content and want more, please consider supporting us on Patreon. If you can spare as little as $1 a month, you'll earn some great extra rewards and exclusive content and move us towards our next support target. We don't have far to go, and if we reach it, then we have committed to increasing the frequency of content on the main feed and on Patreon as a result. And remember, our Patreon support is the sole support that we have for paying for our hosting and everything else associated with the running of this podcast. If you'd like more of the Folklore Podcast in the future, please head to www.patreon.com slash thefolklorepodcast and sign up. You can also make a one-off donation using the donations page in our web store. Thank you so much for listening. Please continue to share our episodes and other social media around, and I look forward to talking to you again soon. See you next time.